welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, starring Jerry Springer with Gene Galvin and me, I am Maria Corelli. We are recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience here in Folk School Coffee Parlor of Ludlow, Kentucky. And here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Jerry Springer! Anyway, I wanted to ask, um, are you getting, as you travel around, Jerry, reactions to Judge Jerry? And if so, what are you hearing? What's the conversation on the street? Are people, are they, because I've been with you when you've had a lot of notoriety because of the Jerry Springer show. Is it now Judge Jerry stuff? Well, it's, because it's gotten so much play with the, uh, as the show started, yeah, there are, People come up to me, ask me about that. Yep. And uh, now they're bringing, in fact, today, getting on the plane, literally there was a, uh, a lovely Cincinnati family, but they're involved in a suit, and they started talking to me about the suit. Oh. Yeah. And I said, you know, I have a tip jar on the, on the, the, on the bench. <laughs> but no, they really did ask me about So yeah, yeah, people talk about it, but that's, we're in a pop culture world, so if things happen on television... There are yeah. enough people that watch television that are going to bring it up to you. It doesn't mean that that's the most important thing in their lives. But if you see, it used to be, if you would see me and wanted to start a conversation, you would make some joke about the ridiculous show I was doing. Now, all of a sudden, they have something new to talk about. So now the latest thing to say is, hey, I heard about your new show. Whether they watch it or not, I have no idea. But... Um, or, hey, heard about that podcast you do. Yeah. <laughs> I should mention that. Occasionally, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah why not? I do. Actually, every time people ask, what are you doing in Cincinnati? I say, I'm, yeah. in, to, I'm in to do my podcast. Yeah, where do you do it? I said, I forget. I think some you're town here. In, Look, in, a lot of those people yeah, are here. Yeah. No, actually, I, I, I do. And, and people in Cincinnati are aware. Yeah. The other day, uh, I saw uh, this and it's the second time I've seen it, maybe the third, Martin Scorsese, Scorsese's uh, documentary about Bob Dylan. Yeah. And uh, called Rolling Thunder Review. Have you ever seen it, Maria? I've not. Oh, it's outstanding. Because he is a great filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And he did this long program interviewing Dylan a whole bunch. Dylan gave him complete access. And lots of people that... Dylan worked with and knew over the years, going all the way back to the folk years, all the way back to his life in Hibbing, Minnesota, yeah. the Iron Range there. And then he moved to Minneapolis, went oh, to Howard Europe. Zimmerman, is his name? How, yeah, how, yeah. Uh, yes, Bobby, Bobby Zimmerman. Yeah. And then went to the basically the deathbed side of uh, Woody Guthrie, yeah. and then hit the scene in Greenwich Village and boom, took off. And Dylan was different from all these other uh, folk singers and songwriters who started off. He he was just richer uh, culturally and smarter. And did you, all kidding aside, you have spent some time with him because you gave him the key to the city in Cincinnati years ago. I did. So did you spend a little bit of time chatting with him, and what impression did you have? Was he shy? Was he talkative? 15, 20 minutes is, okay. is, is, is what it, I'd seen him in concert, but, um, you know, when I, I, I think I've said this story before, when I 
became mayor, I, you know, I was just finished being a kid, maybe still a kid. Um, and I wanted to meet all my favorite rock stars. So I would contact them all through their agents and say, you know, I'm the mayor of Cincinnati. We'd like to give you a key to the city. Yep. So that they would come to Cincinnati, do a concert, and I'd get to meet them. <laughs> and I went to a list of them. Linda Ronstadt, Emmy Lou Harris, uh, Bob Dylan was one of them, uh, Dolly Parton, uh, just on it, the Eagles, Eddie Money, Man. the Steve Miller Band. I, I just went through it all. It was great. <laughs> well, we were running out of keys, and after a while, I just gave away, <laughs> I was just giving away the combination, 14th and <laughs> <away>, 15th. <laughs> I didn't have any more keys left. But um, anyway, so uh, Dylan uh, came in, and I went backstage, and he says, come in, and it was just he and I and his, uh, oh, 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 one other guy was there, and uh, the three of us were in his dressing room for about, as I said, 20, 15, 20 minutes. And he was, there were two interesting things about him. He He was more interested in what it was like to be, because we're the same age, yeah. what it was like at this age to be a mayor. Really? So he, he took just, an interest. He, was, he just kept asking questions, and I wanted cool. to talk about his music. And he just came back from Nuremberg. Um, he had done a concert at Nuremberg, which was very controversial at the time. This was 1978, I think. And um, But anyway, um, and just an incredibly interesting person. And he's not different. In other words, he never breaks who he is. There's not two different Dylans. And when he's on stage, he doesn't talk. He literally does a full, like I saw him, I guess, six months ago. You saw him recently, six months ago. Yeah, he came to Sarasota. Yeah. Okay? Packed house. Yeah. He gets up there, he does a two-hour concert, not one word other than song after song after song, and when it was over, he comes to the middle of the stage, you think now he's going to talk, he just bows like he was in a uh, meeting the queen, bows from the waist, holds up his hands, turns around, and walks off stage. That's amazing, isn't it? You have no idea what he sounds like talking. Isn't that amazing, and he Maria? Just, yeah. It's his, he never breaks out of that reclusive Does Bob he, Dylan. But that his it's stuff all through his is music. so good. It's, 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 it's unbelievable. His, in his mind, I suspect, well, he might, he he might be adverse to He doesn't play the, the showbiz show game at all. Yeah, yeah. He he, he lets his going, art speak for itself. Yeah, he wasn't going to win. He wasn't going to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, the Nobel Prize for I think it was literature. Yeah, literature. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, he's you know, just, I saw him. He is who he, he is, and he's not bending for anybody. His hmm. first tour of America, nineteen sixty something. I was at his concert at Taft uh, Hall in Cincinnati, and that is exactly what he did. So that was 1960 something. Yeah. He has. I'm oh, interested in that. It's just he's never ever changed that. He walked out, had a harmonica around his neck, kind of a plaid flannel shirt, did his set, a long set, and mm. walked off and said thank you and walked off stage. Mm. Compare that with what I saw you do the other night, which I'm you com- still complimenting. Talking, <laughs> talking. Hey Maria, well, you put on a show. And yeah, it's well, part of your. Yeah, banter he's not showbiz. He didn't do that. Well, yeah. I have. To be honest, like 
It's so interesting to hear that because talking to the audience, which is funny that I'm on this podcast, but talking to yeah. the audience is one of the scariest parts of performing. Like I can sit there and sing and that's yeah. fine. But if I want well, the second that my guitar strings stop ringing and I have to address the audience yeah. is the most terrifying part. That's interesting. And me. that is common. Uh, and I'm thinking of Mel Tillis, who was a, I say was, I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know if he's still alive and I hope he is, but Mel Tillis was this wonderful country singer mm -hmm. and he had an incredible stuttering problem and he could not talk without serious stuttering that made mm -hmm. it hard to understand what he wanted to say. And then he would start singing, and you would never know. Mm. I mean, ballads, everything. It's a different part of the brain that that was his confidence level. So I'm not a doctor. I can't tell you why, but it was clear that when he's in that world, that whatever brings about stuttering, to the extent that it's psychological, mm. physiological, whatever, it didn't. You know, and people would talk about that all the time. Yeah. He, you know, he would say, as in an interview, stuttering along, and sometimes even write it out for the interviewer, hmm. that if I sing, it's fine, but I can't talk. So interesting. Yeah, yeah. it is, it is. Hey, there was something that happened uh, in Cincinnati this past weekend, and again, we do these shows, we record them, and then they roll out to the archive audience a little bit later. So this could be a few weeks since this happened. A festival, a unique festival in Cincinnati called Blink, a, the Blink Art Festival. But it was all electronic projected art done at night on buildings. Were you on those bikes? Yeah, I was. Mickey so, and I saw that because we were in for the Jewish holidays. Yeah. And uh, she said, I'm sure Gene's. I was in that group. So yeah, that was that like Wednesday night. Yeah. So yeah, there were right, 100, 400, 500 riders, 600 riders who rode through the city uh, with bikes and all bikes. Uh, we're talking at night, have lights, and some people put additional lights on. And the festival was Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Now, get this. About 2 million people. Now, some of them were the same ones who came multiple nights. I went four nights. My wife went with me two of the four nights. Went five counting the night I rode. Because it stretched 30 blocks so it was like a big distance from mm -hmm. Covington, Kentucky. We're in Ludlow, right next to Covington, for those of you who aren't in Cincinnati. And then headed north, it went 30 blocks up past a neighborhood called Over the Rhine. And then all along the way, and you had a digital map on your phone, or they had paper maps, so you knew where these, these exhibits were. Some of them were laser shows down one alley. They had some smoke machines going, and then weird colored lasers going back and forth. They had, a lot of it was in motion too. They would project onto the side of a huge building, beautiful art. And all the artists were vetted. They, they were selected. They had to be, it was a juried art show to be able to get in this. One thing I wanted to mention, across America, there is a controversy going on about streetcars. Should cities invest money to move people through urban areas and we're not going to get subways like you have in New York City because that time passed a long time ago. But you could have on-the-ground tracks, overhead, electric, you know, tapped in and then roll through the city. 
big controversy in Cincinnati as to whether they should have one. The voters said yes. They've spent the scarce tax money, and we have them. During that four-day period, 40, maybe 50,000 people rode the streetcar. They were free, and the city's considering for the future making it always free. They only make about 70000 a year off of riders paying. I pay. Every time I ride it, I don't cheat and jump on it. But they only make seventy grand. So the attitude is, the bigger picture, and as a former mayor, I bet you get this. If you put streetcar tracks in a big loop covering some miles in the urban part of Cincinnati into a neighborhood that people didn't used to go to, there will be development along those tracks, right? Right. Housing, condos, apartments, storefronts, cigar shops, blah, 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 up and down that loop. And then the people riding those streetcars, 40,000, 50,000 strong for an event, will come back and ride it again. And that brings tax money. Isn't that how you would look at it as a mayor? That brings revenue into the city. Well, if it was only bringing in 70,000 in people paying to be on it, then probably it's worth doing what you're suggesting that the ride be free because the city's only risking yeah it's not much money thousand and the uh, the upside of saying you can ride these cars free in cincinnati i think would really attract people and Hmm. business etc so i think that's a great idea and in denver by the way because i've done it in denver they have a downtown streetcar they did a different deal they're on rubber wheels and it's like buses well i know you i know eugene and you you will do anything that's free Yes, I, I, I will try to find the free stuff. But, uh, and they're free, and they are free in Denver. Doesn't even matter where it's going. Hey, yeah, hey, it's free. Yeah, let's get let's on, go, man. Come on, Jerry, let's go. And where are we? Yeah, I don't know. I don't free. know, but it's free. Let's go. Hey, uh, Jerry, you should, now that you're Judge Jerry, we need to get you back out on the speaking tour politically to all those Democratic Party dinners because you still have plenty to say. Um, We're about to talk about some of that here in a minute. Uh, Political topics, but you're a damn judge. You're not just Jerry Springer, the TV guy. You're Judge Jerry Springer. We are, you're to be feared. (laughs) Well, people are afraid, but... uh... (laughs) Yeah, but that could cut both ways. I'm thinking maybe if you're a judge, you ought not to be too political because then when people come before me, they're going to think they have a better chance of winning the case if they're Democrats, which is true. No, no, it's not true. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. What do you care? You're a TV judge, not a real judge. Hey, no, <laughs> no, I, I do think. Why? We have a TV president. Yeah, we don't have a real president. Now we ought to put the word out. Allow me to put the word out that yeah. Jerry Springer, yeah, <laughs> get him out there. Jerry, let me ask you a question, and it's kind of a weird one because you're a, a self-avowed Democrat and a liberal. <clears throat> but if you were to sit down with some significant Republicans, people on the other side of the aisle from where you would be, and I don't know that they would take your advice but let's assume they were willing to hear it. What advice would you give them these days in light of all that's happening in America around impeachment and the Ukrainian controversy, Syria, the Kurds being killed, our former allies, et cetera? What advice would you give Republicans these days? I, 
I actually gave this serious thought. I wasn't trying to be cute with this suggestion or anything. I was trying to put myself in a position of, let's say I was a conservative and believe in what used to be conservative ideology. Uh, what would my advice to the Republican Party be? And I think there's a remedy which is good for the Republican Party and good for our whole country. And let me start. Okay, Trump didn't come out of nowhere. Trump was, in a sense, ultimately inevitable. You know, the quick answer is that Sarah Palin begat Trump. But I don't want to insult Sarah Palin. Sarah, Sarah Palin, in fairness, is totally authentic. Uh, she's conservative, conservative values. She's a serious uh, Christian fundamentalist. She's not faking the support of it as Trump does, says, oh, I'm with you, Christian, right? You know, the most unreligious person you could find is Trump. So Sarah Palin, even if, and she's like Trump, that she's not very well educated and maybe not the brightest bulb in the circuit, but she's legitimate. She was always legitimate. And frankly, I thought for a while the Democrats were going to be in trouble because they kept making fun of her instead of recognizing that she is what a significant part of America, not a majority, but of what America is, and we ought not to disrespect those values. But it didn't even start with Sarah Palin. It probably started in the very early 60s with Goldwater and then Nixon, when after the Democrats passed the Civil Rights Act in 1965, 64 and 65, that's when Lyndon Johnson famously said, once the act was passed, there goes the South for a generation. And the South, which had historically been solidly democratic since the Civil War and before, the South, would, no matter what Democrat ran, every Southern state went Democrat. Now, all of a sudden, Nixon came up with what they called in 68 the Southern Strategy. And Nixon, by the way, was not a racist. Whatever his issues were on civil rights, he really was pretty good, pretty progressive for the time. But he was very happy to get Southern anti-African-American votes. And the Southern strategy was we could pick up the South now. And with that, he thought there was a way to win in 1968, and he barely did, and Along came George Wallace. So that's really when it started. And then in 92, a guy who was a chief speechwriter for Nixon, Pat Buchanan, he runs, and he has a lot of the nativist, bigoted positions that Trump now takes. So in other words, the, where Trump comes from is a lot of this first Southern strategy then the bigotry of a George Wallace, of a Buchanan, then culturally, not on race, 
because I, I see no evidence of Sarah Palin being a racist, but she was a legitimate white conservative fundamentalist. You know, that was Sarah Palin. And Trump has grabbed onto that. The thing is, Trump is a fraud because he doesn't, at least with Sarah Palin, she believed all that. And you can't make fun of someone's religion. That's what they honestly believe. And she was devout. And here comes Trump trying to dupe these people. Oh, I'm really on your side, man. You know, let's uh, put a Merry Christmas back on the uh, Starbucks cups. You know, that's his big religious issue. So Sarah Palin really was the first Trump. Now, he's picked up that banner, but of course he's more racist. So what, and now we get what we get. So what is, how can the Republican Party now be saved and why does it need to be saved? Why do I as a Democrat really want this party to be saved? Here's the reason. We have always had, in any large population, and particularly considering America's race history, we have always had some group of Americans that are white supremacists, that are racist, that are bigoted. In a country of 330 million people, you're going to have racists. What makes this year, these few years, scarier is that for the first time, there is now a national party whereby these extreme views can find a home. We always had the Klan. We always had white supremacists. We always have had racists, but they were always on the edges. They didn't find a home in any major institutional political party. Even within the party, they were called wackos. And now all of a sudden, Trump has given them cover. Trump has given them legitimacy. Trump has given them a major political party. That is dangerous if you're a minority for America. And we see the danger every day. When he goes to Minnesota and with a, a, a Muslim congresswoman, an American citizen, as a, she happened to have been born in Somalia, came over when she was a child. She won a huge victory in a congressional seat. And he says, we can't permit more Somalians into America. This is totally, clearly racist. When he goes to, I think it was Alabama, maybe it was in Georgia. I forget where he was, this last week or two. And he gave a comment about Joe Biden. Says, you know, all Joe Biden has done is he spent eight years running around kissing Obama's butt. Well, I generally don't curse. But there is a phrase that is very popular among white supremacists in racist kind of communities or environments, and you've probably all heard it, 
you can kiss my black ass. When Trump said Joe Biden is going around kissing Obama's ass. This is a president of the United States saying that. That was a dog whistle, folks. People that have racist instincts, that have a racist history, maybe it was an ugly part of the culture. But the great fear right after, part of the Civil War and right after the Civil War is the one thing that the whites couldn't take is having a black person in charge of them. Having to work for a black, having a black person sitting in political office, having a black person sitting on the jury. That is just the one thing they were scared of. And it conjures up that whole language. Why would you ever attack a vice president who supports the president? Does Pence not grovel up to Trump? Is he not his little puppy? But no, only Biden kissing Obama's. But it's not by chance, folks. It's ugly. It is out there. So what is the solution the Republican Party can do to cleanse itself and save our country? We cannot give these people a home in a major political party. And so I know he's not listening, but I'd like to request... Senator George Romney to run for the Republican nomination for president. And let me explain why. If I were a Republican and a, you know, a decent Republican, conservative, everything, George Romney, you can check off every box of what a Republican, a decent Republican stands for without the racism. You couldn't find anybody. He's totally religious. He's totally moral. He's obviously bright. He's totally conservative. He's with them on all their issues, whether it's abortion, whether it's uh, the economy, whatever it is. And you know what? He's not going to beat Trump in the primaries. But... Assuming Trump then loses the election, which is a major possibility, the Republican Party will then have a standard bearer to continue to exist, which would not be a home to racists. Romney has been very outspoken about that. So even though I would never vote for him, and I, I would say that to him in total respect, but I have total respect for him. He's a decent human being. He's a, a great public servant, not my views, but a great public servant. What bad can you say about him? And he's a Republican. Let good and decent Republicans get to him. He has no past you got to bury and say, run. 
run as a moral force within the Republican Party to resurrect the Republican Party and to make it clear that the Republican Party will never be a home for racists. That is a victory for America. Uh, we had this artist up on our podcast uh, a couple weeks back, and we'd like to welcome him again. He's from Texas originally, but um, lives in Nashville now. And let's welcome Jeremy Parsons to the stage. Thanks, guys. It is so good to be back. <laughs> you ought to change your outfit, though. <laughs> week after week. <laughs> um, what is uh, your last song that you'll play for us? The last one I'm going to do, uh, if, if not all these songs have been new to you, this is a new one right here. Uh, I'm currently working on a new record right now. Uh, when I'm not on the road in Texas or bouncing around somewhere else, I'm trying to finish up this new 10-track project, which will uh, hopefully be out next year or sometime. And, uh, this is the title track from it. I'm, I'm staying with the, uh, the Things vibe, so the last one will be Things I Need to Say, and this one will be Things to Come, and then the one after that will be Things I Didn't Think Before or something like that. <laughs> And all I'd done would have changed 
Yeah, I'm proud of me and who I've come to be Ain't nostalgia a powerful thing Yeah, nostalgia's a powerful thing I'd go back if I could That ain't how it works I lived it, I loved it And all that I learned Old time is a healer And life must go on Yeah, so here's to all the things to come Yeah, here's to all the things to come sing down by the riverside and let Jerry sing on it too? Of course. I'm gonna lay down my heavy load down by the riverside down by the riverside down by the riverside I'm gonna lay down my heavy load down by the been listening to Tales, Tunes, and Tom Fullery, recorded live at the Folk School Coffee Parlor in Ludlow, Kentucky. Thanks to Patrick Kennedy for writing our opening song, and to you for listening. Check out our website, jerryspringer.com. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I'm gonna lay down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside, down by the riverside, I ain't gonna study war no more. 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 I ain't gonna study. Now you hear?